Let's turn to Galatians 3, please. Don't forget, I did Sunday. There's a ladies' workshop this Sunday, right, Joanne? And is that right after service? And is that down in Beantown? I thought so. That means all ladies are invited, and it means you aren't, Mike. Galatians chapter 3. During the month of May, remember, we are collecting non-perishable food and paper products for the New Kensington Salvation Army. Keep them coming. And you have been. Thank you for that. A few moments of silent preparation. Father, we recognize that we are in your Son. We are in the crucified and risen one. And therefore, we are with him seated at your right hand, and therefore, we are in your immediate presence. May we be aware of this as, we, as I speak, as we listen. May we be intensely aware, as Paul said, in the sight and presence of God, we speak in Christ. We not only speak in Christ, Father, but we pray in Christ, we think in Christ, we move and have our being in him. And we thank you for that. We pray that you will manifest him tonight, for it is you who have made us the people of God, and not we ourselves. And we thank you for that. So grant grace to us, Father, to make the most of this opportunity into which we've entered by your grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, I wanted to um, relate what I think was the best Mother's Day card I ever ever read. And um, it was from our, our niece, Julie Henry. She takes care of children. She's in a daycare center. And I'm going to see if I can get this right. I, I was going to bring my phone up to read it to you, but... It was from a little girl named Brooke, and she said, Mom, thank you so, lots of O's, much for being my mom. If I had a different mom, I would punch her in the face and run and find you. (laughs) That was the best Mother's Day, and perhaps the warmest sentiment I've ever heard from Brooke. So, thank you for sharing my quirky sense of humor. But the second thing I want to do is answer a Scott Jones observation. I was going to say objection, but Scott would never object. He didn't speak in my absence, but he did because he was quoted quite often. He's quite the student and quite the appropriator of doctrine. But he mentioned to me after service... And you have to understand, lots of times when we get started, there's a rocky start when you're preaching. You're just trying to get your bearings and find out where you are and make sure that you're in the will of God. And I think I mentioned something about a redemption that's in the future. In fact, I did. And he said, what did you mean by that? He was kind of, and and I like that because iron sharpens iron and a man's countenance is sharpened by that of his friend. He said, what did you mean that redemption's in the future and reconciliation is something we have. And in answer to that, I was speaking in the future tense of redemption. There is a future tense of redemption, and that's having to do with the final redemption of our bodies, which is at the resurrection. So that's what I intended to say. And that's found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. All of creation... All the screaming creation, all the groaning creation is waiting in anticipation for the manifestation of the sons of God to wit the redemption of our bodies. We wait for that redemption of our bodies. Ephesians 4.30 says the same thing. You have been sealed 
with that promised Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So I wasn't speaking of redemption in the sense of Romans 3.24, which is a finished and already accomplished work in Christ. I was not speaking of that. I'm speaking of a future redemption. I should have clarified that. I was also speaking in a rather Barthian way of speaking. Karl Barth always spoke about the fact that the world is reconciled but yet to be redeemed. And I think it's the same thing he intended to say was that the world is yet to be redeemed through transfiguration and glorification. And that includes bodily resurrection for all, whether doers of good or doers of evil. Resurrection, as I explained a little bit last, sun- last week and Sunday. So God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and God has made Christ to be for us redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.19, 1 Corinthians 1.30. So there is a now and not yet about both reconciliation, which is not to be resisted, and redemption, albeit both being inevitably future because of their certainty in the past accomplishment of God in Christ. Once again, Romans 3.24 2 Corinthians 5.19. Now my subject for tonight is called Promises, Promise. You've heard people say promises, promises. Well, I'm saying promises, promise. Promises in the plural in Galatians 3.16 correlates with promises in the plural in 2 Peter 1.4. I've read quite a bit about the background of Second Peter, and I'm finding that there's much more in Second Peter that summarizes the Pauline epistles than just the last few verses. So by God's fulfillment in Christ of the promises, and that's plural again, which is intending to say one promise made and repeated to Abraham and his seed. By God's fulfillment in Christ, I'm sort of paraphrasing Second Peter 1, 4 now, of the promises, exceeding great and precious promises, which is the same as saying the promise made and repeated to Abraham and to his seed. We become partakers of the divine nature because the blessing that was promised to Abraham and to his seed is the promised spirit by whom we all are sharers in Christ's existence. We share Jesus Christ's existence, and we become partakers in a Trinitarian fellowship. As John wrote in 1 John the Elder, he wrote in 1 John 1, 3, I've written these things to you that your fellowship would be with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. In 324, he brings in the Holy Spirit as Paul does in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, May the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So to one seed who is Christ, the promises, plural, were made. And this is what Paul is teaching in Galatians 3. This is what I think the author of 2 Peter, which was not Peter, I'm convinced of that. I go through a long study to find out who wrote what and when, and there's, it's just impossible to attribute this directly to Peter. It does not mean that this epistle is not canonical. It is very definitely a canonical epistle and inspired, but it's under the pseudepigraphic genre in which Peter's name is chosen because someone, one of his colleagues, has summarized his gospel and summarized his truth and communicated it. Paul's epistles were pretty much collected by this time. But that's that's neither here nor there. There is a correlation in 2 Peter 1, 4, 2 Galatians chapter 3. The promises were made to one seed who is Christ. 
And the promises are also known as the promise. So in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is a very important thing that we're finding in trying to find the shape of an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ in all of Paul's epistles. The gospel, what is it? Quits it. What is the gospel? Paul, I think, makes it very clear in Galatians 3.8 that the scripture, which he personifies, even as the word is personified in John, the scripture which he personifies foreseeing that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles or the pagans, that is to the whole world and not just to Israel, preach the gospel to Abraham in advance, saying, in you and in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we have an unconditional promise. That's all he says. That's the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed to Abraham that in his seed, that is Christ, all the nations of the earth, and that includes Israel, as we'll find out more and more, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's no condition. It's an unconditional promise, which is an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional promise, but it has universal implications, direct implications. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's the universality of it. The unconditionality of it is period over and out. He doesn't say in you, all the nations of the earth who believe will be blessed. He does not say in you, all the nations of the earth who behave will be blessed, or who do good will be blessed. It simply says, and there's the bridge is right here between unconditionality and universality. So the seed is Christ. And if the seed is Christ, and in him all the nations are to be blessed, then he is the same Christ, who's called the second man in 1 Corinthians 15, in whom all in Adam will be made alive. You put those two identifications of Christ as the singular seed and Christ as the second representative man together, you got a powerful correlation. You have an explosion of illumination and you have the beginning of a vision of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. Now, that's important because that very revelation is saving in its power. That very envisionment by believers of Christ is saving. The revelation of Christ is salvific. All flesh will experience the salvation of the Lord. Every eye will see him. Revelation 1-7, quoting or alluding to Zechariah 12-10. And in Isaiah 40 and verse 5, cited in Luke 3, all flesh will experience his salvation every eye sees him all flesh experiences his salvation there's the ultimate universality of the gospel promise now to one seed the promises were made so in christ all the nations of the earth will be blessed that blessing is a shared participation or a partaking in the divine nature as second peter summarizes it in one four it's a, it's a shared participation with Christ's own life by the Spirit. In fact, we can equate in Galatians. There's two equations I want to make really tonight and tomorrow night if I have time. The first equation is that the promise is the Spirit. That's why he's often called the Spirit of Promise or the Promised Spirit in Ephesians 1.13 and 14, 2 Corinthians one. 22, the promised spirit in Christ, all the promises are fulfilled. And then it talks about being anointed in him by the spirit. And it's the promises, the spirit. The second equation is that the coming of faith in Galatians 3.23 is exactly the same as and refers to the same thing as the coming of Christ. The coming of faith in the coming of Christ. And the custodial effect of the law 
only imprisoning all until faith comes, that is, until Christ comes, which is a demonstration of God's faithfulness. Christ's coming is faith, faith's coming. And therefore, the faithfulness of Christ has come with Christ. And that coming of Christ should be understood as a full orbed event beginning with his incarnation running through his days the days of his flesh and of hebrews 5 7 which involved obedience in 5 8 by which he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him in 5 9 and i have no problem with the word to all who obey him as we're going to see little by little some tonight so that to me is a very rich spring of refreshment to which we have been led by the Lamb, who is also our shepherd. It is a spring of refreshment to know that the promises, or the promise issued several times, was to Abraham's seed. The promise was made to Christ, not just Abraham. More importantly, to his seed. And so in Christ, all the nations of the earth are bound to be blessed. That is by a shared participation with his life by the spirit. This correlates with Joel's prophecy that the spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Ultimately, in Joel 2, 28 to 32. Now, this seed in whom all the nations will be blessed, including Israel, is the man Christ Jesus in whom all who were once in Adam will be made alive. If you don't get anything out of what I'm saying so far, just correlate these two verses and read them before you go to bed. Galatians 3.16, 1 Corinthians 15.22, and realize that the singular seed in whom all the nations will be blessed is the same identical person as the second man in whom all who were once in Adam, will be made alive. I see some universality there. I detect it. Maybe you don't. It won't break our fellowship. So why is there a first man and a second man? Because there's only two men when it comes to persons that the Bible reveals to be representative of all of humankind and who are bearers of the destiny of all mankind. Adam is the bearer of the destiny of all mankind. In him, all men die. Christ is the bearer of the destiny of all mankind. In him, all will be made alive. The old age of Adam is gone. The old man should be put off and we should be what we are. That's the whole exhortation of Paul's epistles. And in fact, all the New Testament exhortations is to be what you are in Christ. Or as someone else said, become what you are becoming. Both of which are well understood. I think they convey an understanding. So there is a stunning universality created by the correlation of these two identifications of Jesus the Christ. Well... So, in keeping with our series title, Better Call Paul, what do you say, Paul? And look what 317 says. This is what I'm saying. (laughs) What do you say, Paul? Well, this is what I'm saying. 317. I'm saying the law. I like the Christian uh, it's not, I think, well, I always want to say Christian, but it's the complete Jewish Bible, CJB. The Christian, or the C- complete Jewish Bible says the legal part of the Torah. That's pretty good about what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about Torah, all the books of the Bible. He's talking about the legal part of the law. We might call it the Sinaitic law, the law of Sinai. This is what I'm saying. The law... And he's speaking here, I think it's even more accurate to realize that the law is the forensic voice of the law. The law has two voices. One is a cursing and enslaving voice in Deuteronomy 27, 26, but one is the voice of promise, and the promise is unconditional. And the voice that we hear now, 
The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two, literally two-mouthed sword. The law is a two-mouthed sword. The legal part of the law, Paul's saying, this is what I'm saying. The legal part of the law, which came 430 years later, that means 430 years after the promise God made to Abraham and to his seed. Paul's saying there's nothing that's intervened now between the coming of Christ and the promise to the seed that can contravene, contradict, or overtake the promise, including the law, including the legal part of the law. And you're saying to yourself probably the same thing that you should be saying. Well, why the law at all then? And Paul asks the same question. We'll see this maybe, if not tonight, tomorrow night. This is what I'm saying, Paul says. The law, which came 430 years later, does not nullify a covenant. Here he explicitly calls the promise to Abraham an unconditional covenant of promise. So I could translate it this way with an amplified translation. This is what I'm saying. The law, that is the forensic voice of the law, which came 430 years later, does not nullify a covenant so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance, now here the inheritance is used, he uses that term again in Galatians 5.21 in one of those Parts of Paul that are difficult to be understood, which unlearned and unstable people twist and distort to their own destruction. That is the destruction of their ministries by messing with Paul's teaching. That's what the teachers did in Galatia. That's what a teacher would do in Rome. That's what many did against Paul in his time. That's what many are doing to Paul in our own time. That's what people have been doing to Paul throughout the time of the church history. And that will be shown as dust and ashes in the evaluation. But he says, for if the inheritance, and by that he means the inheritance of the blessing, the actual receiving of it, the blessing, which includes the inheritance of the cosmos, the universe, according to Romans 4.13, and of all things, tapanta, which is universally everything, in Romans 8.32, and also in Paul's exclaimed interjection of 1 Corinthians 3.21 to 23, he got a little ecstatic for a while, and he said to the Corinthians, don't you know all things are yours? Whether Paul, you don't glory in men, whether it's Paul or Cephas, Peter, or Apollos, they're all yours. They're yours for your advantage, for your edification. And he says, whether things present or things past, whether death or life, it's all yours. All things are yours. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. You are partakers of the divine nature by being in Christ, who is divine because he's in God the Father and shares the Father's divinity. You share a partaking in the divine nature, even though you haven't become, nor will you ever be divine. But Jesus Christ became like us so that we would be like him through resurrection, ultimately. Let's back up. I'm doing commentary now. So what I want to do is an exegesis someday of Galatians in which I do the exegesis and then separate the commentary. Much to your delight, I hope. Verse 17 again. This is what I'm saying after he spoke about this promise being made to the seed. The law, which came 430 years after or later, does not nullify a covenant so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, and I love the phrase he uses here in the Greek, ek namu, from the law as a source, or from law observance as a source, ek namu, if... The inheritance is from the law or from the legal part of the Torah and your fulfilling of it, ek namu. It is no longer from the promise. There's a mutual exclusion here. There is a dialectic 
of direct contradictories. Either the inheritance comes by an unconditional promise or the inheritance comes through adherence to the Sinaitic law, the legal part, the forensic part of the law. We could even add now to this, or it comes through forensic justification on the event of your faith, which isn't true either. Watch this. The contradiction is not between ek namu and your faith, law versus faith. What it is, is, Paul, what do you say? If it is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, the unconditional promise. So we have X, E X, E P, A N G E L I A, Epangelia. X from a source, Epangelia, the unconditional promise. If the law or if the inheritance comes Ek Namu, then. The promise or the covenant is conditional, and it's a contractual covenant in which you have to obey. But if it comes, if it doesn't come through the law, then it has to come through the promise. X, E-X, or the same as Ek, it's the same as Ek, E-P-A-N-G-E-L-I-A, Epangelia. So what do you say, Paul? He says, well, if the inheritance is from the law, it's no longer from the promise. And so people say, well, then what are we going to do? Where is the inheritance? How does it come to us then? Well, he says, here it is. But God freely, freely, you may read that as unconditionally, if you will. But God unconditionally granted it strong word here kekaristai and it is the perfect middle indicative of the verb karizomai which means to totally grace out someone so don't worry the inheritance doesn't come from law it comes from an unconditional promise which God granted unconditionally to Abraham by a promise. So here we have ek epangelia and de epangelia, through the promise. Just as Paul in Romans uses ek pistios and dia pistios. And I think... If we're going to approach the epistles of Paul, we have to go to Galatians first. It was written first, and it was tested. A lot of his insights were tested in Galatia, and then they were ironed out in Rome. So if you, we almost have to go to Rome via Galatia, I think, if we're going to understand these epistles. Now, most often, Paul uses the single word promise, the singular word for promise. The examples of that are Galatians 3.14, 3.17, 3.18, where he uses the singular twice for promise. Then 3.19, 3.22, Also the singular promise in 4.23 and 4.28 under a slightly different context. But he also speaks of promises. And this can be confusing unless we understand something. He speaks in connection with Promises, plural. Does that mean he's speaking of some other promises besides the promise? No. He is speaking of promises in connection with the same pledge made to Abraham and more importantly to his seed, which is Christ, Galatians 3.16 and 3.21. As J. Lewis Martin has observed, that's M-A-R-T-Y, because if you put an R there instead of an N, you'd have martyr. That's how you remember that. J. Lewis Martin has observed, page 339 in his Galatians. I can say 339 because I read the whole thing. That's what Florida was all about. He says, quote, the plural may reflect the fact that God repeated his promise to Abraham. And that's exactly right. We can call it promises because it's simply the repetition of the same promise which are made throughout, really, Genesis 12 through 22 and even into 24 7 the same promise hey 24 7 (laughs) 
promise. But in 22.18, he makes it specifically to the seed singular. It's singular seed, spermati, to spermati. In the Septuagint translation, it's the same singular, zera, in the Hebrew text. So there's no problem with it at all. There's a unification of testimony here. So he said the plural may reflect the fact that God repeated his promise. So Christ, who is the singular seed, that's Galatians 3.16, in whom all the nations will be blessed, and the blessing is a participation in the divine nature, which is union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. The same Christ, who is the singular seed, in whom all the nations will be blessed with a participation in the divine nature, is the same Christ in whom all will be made alive, even as all die in Adam. Two men and two men alone bear the destiny of the entirety of the human race, Adam and Christ. Adam is the first man. The destiny he bears as our destiny, which is death. But Christ bears our destiny into the eternity, and therefore his, his overcomes Adam's bearer of the destiny. So Paul, when he writes Romans 5, he talks about much more Christ than Adam. It's not just a comparison that in Adam die and Christ all be made alive. It's much more in Christ, much more all are made alive. In Christ, much more, much more Christ is the bearer of destiny of all of humanity in a single monolith. And that's what Paul does. He brings all of human, humankind into a single, unified monolith or unity. And that's what happened at the cross. At the cross, before Christ, was the whole world, past, present, and future of mankind. And when he said, Father, forgive them, he was sink- looking at the monolith of enti- the entirety of humanity. And he, therefore, Christ, while we were yet sinners, how could we were not yet sinners because we were not yet born. So how can we be considered people that were already that were sinful and people that were rebels and people that were enemies if we weren't born yet? Because all of humanity in a single monolith appeared before the cross in its sinful state. We appeared in our sinful state as enemies and Christ died while we were yet enemies. So Christianity, as my sister Sandy texted me, this reminded me, Christianity is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. And that's the case with the love of God. So then, both men are bearers of destiny. Jesus Christ is the bearer of our destiny of all mankind to life is the same singular seed to whom the promise was made or the promises were made because the single promise was repeated. You can't get any stronger correlate. Well, you can. I guess you could get a stronger correlation because whenever I say you can't, I find out you can and we will. So it's through a fulfillment in Christ of these great and exceedingly precious promises made to Abraham and to his seed, Christ, that we are partakers of the divine nature. That is, participators in Christ's life. For while we were yet dead in sins, God made us alive with Christ. We are participators now in Christ's life and faithfulness through the spirit of the son whom God sent into our hearts as we'll see or as you'll see if you read on in Galatians 4, 6. Crying out, Abba, Father. But let's go to 319 now. What do you say, Paul? So then, Paul said, why the law? That's exactly what we're supposed to ask. If we're saying, well, if the law... It was intervened, but it didn't really blockade the promise. Why did the law even have to come anyways? Well, why the law? The legal part of Torah. Why? Campbell makes, or rather Martin makes some very strong insinuations that I admire him for, and I'm not yet convinced, but he says that what Paul emphasizes about the legal part of the law 
is that it was spoken by the Elohim or by the angels. It wasn't spoken by God. It was spoken by the angels in the absence of God, and it was given to Israel through a mediator, Moses. There's two points where it's weakened. Now, it seems to me, though, that Yahweh spoke the law, but he mediated it through angels and then through Moses. So I'm not, I don't quite see what J. Lewis Martin is saying, otherwise known as Lou. I wish he was still alive. I might even call him up. No, I wouldn't. I never call up scholars. I figure they're too busy. Plus, I'm calling Paul. I'm not calling Lou Martin. But in any case... Let's just see what Paul says, not what Lou Martin says, not what Kazaman says. What does Paul say? Not what Campbell says, not what, any, not what I say. Why the law? Paul says this, it was a temporary prosthesis. I use the word prosthesis because everybody knows, especially after the Iraq wars and the Afghanistan wars, what prosthetic devices are prosthesis and it comes from the greek word prosthetomy which is used here so the law is not really part of the body it's a prosthetic but it's only a temporary prosthetic because god makes the arm grow back so it's a prosthetic and that's what i would even translate this for in a modern sense it was a temporary prosthesis from prosthetomy to add to because of transgressions Now, there's two things this means. The law was given to define what a transgression is. Like Paul says, speaking in a hypothetical voice in character, not of himself, but of anyone who's trying to do the works of the law. He says, I didn't know it was wrong to covet until the law said you will not covet. And that defined covetousness as sin. Not only did it define covetousness as sin, it incentivized Paul to covet. Because the strength, of the, sin, the strength of sin is in the law. Don't get Paul wrong. The law isn't sinful. But the law was hijacked by sin. And the law became weakened by the flesh. So what the law could not do in that it was weakened through the flesh, God did, sending his son and condemning sin that had the law in hand, in his flesh. That's why there's no condemnation possible to us. The other reason why the law was given, we find from Romans 5.20. The law came in a side door so that the transgressions would increase in human history. Not only would they increase, they would be incentivized by the law. And that means that more and more sins were committed. The whole human race became a sin-committing mill a factory, a manufacturers of sin, which only accentuates the grace of God because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. If there's ever a legal battle going on and an objection from the devil, and the devil, by the way, is the ultimate nice guy. If you were to meet the devil, he would be a nice guy. He would be a morally upright person. He would be all the things that you admire. He would be a person that would write stories about the triumph of the human spirit and write scripts for television about it. But there would be something entirely godless about it. There would be no Jesus Christ in his conversation. There would be just a nice guy. Ask Isha what she thought of the nice guy. See, she dropped Adam and went on satansmatch.com to find her right man. (laughs) Right. I'll tell you about that someday. The misuse of a doctrine of right man, right woman. It's been so misused, you have to cancel it in your thinking. Because it doesn't work in a generation like this. Plus, you don't find your right partner after you're married. If you're married, you look to your left or your right and see her or him and say, there's my right man or right woman. That's the end of the story. Okay, never mind. 
So then why the law? Because of transgressions until when? Until. Because of transgressions until the coming of the seed. To whom the promise was made. To whom whom was the promise was made to whom the seed and therefore my righteous one will live by his faithfulness was a promise made to God's Christ the seed he's the one by whose faithfulness he lives but by his faithfulness everybody lives so it came It was a temporary prosthetic or prosthesis because of transgressions until the coming of the seed to whom the promise was made. It, the law, was ordered through angels. We know that from Deuteronomy 32.3, but I suspect there's something here of the involvement of the Elohim, those who are called gods, through whom the law came. The law came through the gods, who were discredited and judged later. It came through a mediator. There's two weaknesses. These two weaknesses are designed to show the impotence, the total inability of the law to justify or to give life. And so, it was a prosthetic the law, the legal part of the law, because of transgressions until the coming of the seed to whom the promise was made. It, the law, was ordered through angels by the hand of a mediator. And Paul starts right in to show what these, what this is, why this mediator, and incidentally, the angels being involved in the giving of the law is also found in Hebrews 2.2. It's found in Deuteronomy 33.2-4. It's found in Acts 7.38 and 7.53 in Stephen's speech. But here's what Paul says. What do you say about that, Paul? Verse 20. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one. In other words, if there's one person and he has to mediate, he doesn't mediate between himself and himself unless he's suffering from some kind of multiple personality disorder or dissociation. But a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. This is actually an oblique reference to the Shema. Listen up, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Paul emphasizes this to against Jewish teachers who should know this well. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one So he says in verse 21, is the law, that is with its forensic voice, against the promise of God. Now, what is he saying here? I think what he's saying is, is the law successfully blockading the promise? Can this law successfully blockade the promise? Because in one sense, the law is against the promise. But Paul, what Paul here is saying is, can the law be successful against the unconditional promise? Can the law, having been taken in hand by human sin, can that prevent or blockade the inheritance coming to all the Gentiles, in fact, to all humankind? And here's where Paul said, I'll translate it this way. Can the law successfully blockade the promise of God? And the answer is one of three uses of this phrase in Galatians, and there's ten more uses in Romans, and it's called meganoito, of course not, or hell no, or perish the thought, or the strongest possible way to say it without using vulgarity. There's lots of ways for us to say absolutely not. But Galatians 3.21, of course not. For if a law had been given that had the power to give life, and that's impossible, but he said if, if a law had been given that had the power to give life, then righteousness or we could say deliverance or liberation from sin and death, would be by the law. 
Here the law then is portrayed first as having been commanded by angels. Josephus writes about it in Antiquities, chapter 15, paragraph 5, third sentence. And secondly, by means of a mediator, Moses. Thirdly, the law is revealed to be powerless or impotent to give life or to bring righteousness or deliverance. You put those two together as we did in a previous message in 321, the law is impotent to give righteousness or life where the same thing is meant. Justification means the giving of life. The law cannot give life. My words are spirit and life, Jesus said. So three things. The law was commanded by angels. Secondly, it was by means of a mediator. Two weaknesses. Third, the law is revealed to be powerless or impotent to give life or righteousness. In contrast, the promise, which is the power to give life, And bring deliverance was made directly by God. No mediator. God is one. Directly by God to Abraham and to his seed, which, listen to this. Here's the advance on the message. His seed, which is Christ individually and the church collectively. We being many are one loaf we being many are one as a body a human body has many members but they're all parts of the same body so also is christ first corinthians 12 12 so when paul says later on you are the seed of abraham he's not contradicting because you are in christ and christ is the seed and you are christ corporate as christ is christ corporeally you are christ corporately And so in Christ, uh, the promise comes to you. And the promise is the spirit. And the promise is life. And the promise is fellowship with the father. As the son fellowships with the father. So, in contrast, the promise which has the power to give life and bring deliverance was made directly by God to Abraham and to his seed, which is the church collectively. I'll say it this way, which the church collectively is. Collectively, you are Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.12, compared with Galatians 3.29, which anticipates the end of the chapter, and which mankind, listen to this one, here's a further advance, and which mankind collectively will be. The seed is Christ. The seed is also the church presently, the, chi- the seed is also ultimately all of humankind made alive in Christ. So let me read this sentence. I wrote it out today and don't know how it came together, but let me read it to you. In contrast, the promise which has the power to give life and bring deliverance was made directly by God to Abraham and to his seed, Christ, which is the church collective, which, which the church collectively is, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and Galatians 3, 29, in which mankind collectively will be, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. This is something introduced as a note in the symphony. We've got to keep playing it until the crescendo. So again, I'm doing this on Wednesdays and Thursdays, sorry. So I think we can look over from here directly to John 1, 17. And the law came through Moses. Grace and truth, which we could call covenant fidelity, came by Jesus Christ. The first hints of USSJC in our particular church history, that is the history of Tedeleste Phalanx in the Alamo, our first indications of universal Salvation or the universal saving significance of Christ came in John's gospel, chapter one, the fourth G before Rev the book before BCP better call Paul. So in closing, let's look at this Galatians three twenty two. anticipating. He said, but instead, instead of what? Instead of a law being given that gives life, it can't be done. So instead The scripture has imprisoned everything. Well, wait a minute. We see that somewhere else, don't we? The scripture has imprisoned everything. Tapanta. The scripture has 
imprisoned everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike, in disobedience. Yeah, so he can damn us all. No, so that he can have mercy on all. Romans 11.32. Here it is again, the concept, only a different context. Remember, we're dealing with different contexts in Galatians and Romans. But still, nevertheless, there is that parallel. Instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin. That's the whole universe. That's all of humankind as a single monolith. And that's the law, too. The law, too, is under the power of sin, capital S-I-N, because it's a power. Precisely so that the promise, listen to this phrase, by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, it says explicitly, ek pistios Jesu Christu. So the promise, which we've already established as being an unconditional promise with universal implications, By the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Ekpistios Jesu Christu, would be given to those who believe. Now, here's the catch. Here it is. Given to those who believe. There it is. It's just us who believed. The rest of the world can be damned. But I want to just, instead of just slamming that idea, I want to quote. A couple of things. And then I'm going to do something I hardly ever did before. And that's quote myself. Back in Rev the book. First of all. And I went on the pronunciation guide at Google. And I said English. How do you pronounce Ernst Kasemann? And they said Ernst Kasemann. And that's English. And then I went Australia. And it was more like. You know it sounded more like a kangaroo speaking. But it was like Ernst Kasemann. And then I put it on Deutsch or Dutch. And I also heard Moltmann say, because he was his teacher, it's Ernst Kasemann, K-A-S-E-M-A-N-N. But I'm reading his commentary in Romans and going back and forth with him. He doesn't say the same thing that Campbell says about it. He sees Romans one eighteen to 32 as Paul and not a teacher. And there's a good case. He has a good case. Not, I don't think it's good enough, but... Here's what Kazaman said regarding Romans 1.16, where we see the same phrase, Pante to pistuanti, all who believe, all who believe. The gospel is the power of salvation to all who believe. And so what happened is, ever since the Reformation, there was a restriction that the gospel is the power of salvation only to those who believe. It doesn't say only to those who believe. It says to those who believe, which means the gospel is the present power of salvation to us who have believed and who are believing because faith was elicited upon the hearing of the gospel. But here it is. Listen carefully. Kasemann says, and I'll use the German pronunciation as best I can, Ernst Ernst Kasemann, page 22 of his world-famous commentary on Romans, 1980, produced by William B. Erdmans, said this, this panti to pistuante, in Romans 1.16, repeated in Galatians 3.22, expresses both the presence of salvation and also its universal scope. Where faith is, there is the place of salvation. And this implies not only assurance of future deliverance from judgment, but beyond that, also present peace and joy as a state of openness before God and man. Then on page 155, I read ahead. I didn't read all the way up to there, but I read ahead. Regarding Romans 5.16, which to me is the heart of the heart of the heart of the matter, Romans 5.16 to 19. He uses the word to those that have received the kingdom of Christ or the lambanontes. He says the lambanontes, those who received in Romans 5.16, the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace, they are called lambanontes or He says, they are doubtless believers. These now take the place, he says, of the earlier 
many, quote, close quote, many in Romans 5.15. So now people that are believers take the place of many. So are we getting exclusive here? But then he says this, and I emphasize this. He said, this implies no restriction since all are mentioned in verse 18. And the many reappears in 519. The point is that even under grace and as a believer, a person remains dependent on the one who, with the expression dia tu enos Jesu Christu, the one man Jesus Christ, is with solemn emphasis opposed again to Adam as a bearer of destiny. In so many words, Ernst Kasemann is saying, who was the mentor of Jürgen Moltmann and the mentor for 40 years of J. Lewis Martin and a reader of Paul's epistles as apocalyptic in genre or apocalyptic in tone, is saying that all references to those who believe does not restrict the salvation to those who believe because of the other references on both ends, on both sides of 516, you have the many and the all and the many. So those who believe does not cancel it out. But it does show that those who believe are the present tense experiencers and knowers of this salvation. Much more will come on that. I'm not done with this subject yet. Much more will come. But I want to close by quoting something from Rev the Book, 2012, in part two under Exposition, Vision, and Vista. It's in print. It's Lesson 388. And it's Words That Are Faithful and True, part six. The title of the message was Surmounting the Dichotomies of Unbelief and Belief and the Dead and the Living. Sunday, November 29th, 2015. The Lord will hold me accountable to this, so I'm holding myself accountable to it tonight. Revelation 22.6, quote, In Romans 11.32, Paul announces climactically that salvific mercy is to be extended to all. In Revelation 1.7, we know that this mercy also extends even to those who pierced the flesh of Yahweh in Jesus the Nazarene. The pastoral epistles and Second Peter, especially 3.15 to 16, which we're looking at went Sundays and maybe midweek too, as well as Rev the Book in Toto, in one way or another, all recap or distill Paul's epistolary content. This is back in 2015. By saying in 1 Timothy 1.13 that Paul received mercy in unbelief and by saying that he is a prototype of those who are about to believe to eternal life, 1 Timothy 1.16 means that mercy is obtained by unbelievers and will be obtained by all unbelievers for all were unbelievers at one time or another. And that is precisely the point of Romans 11.32, that all are imprisoned in unbelief, that is, disobedience, evidently to the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5, so that mercy can be on all. This, and this is the last thing I'll say and we'll close, this has enormous significance for the demolition of the dichotomy, believers versus unbelievers. All right? You can take this message to the bank if you want, or you can take it to the memory bank and think about it. But thank you, Father, for this opportunity yet again to make a little more advance. Here a little, there a little is how Isaiah 28 said it. In some regards, facetiously, but it's actually true. We grow in grace little by little, here a little, there a little. May what we receive tonight through the Spirit's illumination of these verses allow us more and more to see a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance because this is the vision 
that actually brings the experience of salvation to your people so they do not perish. This is our official prayer to you tonight, Father, which we utter in Christ Jesus, in your presence, by your spirit, for our generation and the ones to follow.